Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. We uh, are looking, have been looking, at Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica, the church that he founded, but was likely only at for a few weeks. And he had a burning desire to visit them. He writes this down. This is our little, this is our review leading up to the the stuff you really want to hear. But I need you to remember the context. And he really wanted to see how they were doing. I hate to use the word worry. We like to think that Paul never worried, but he was uh, concerned. He had a deep concern and a strong desire to see them, not just because he loved and missed them, but because he was concerned about how they were holding up under persecution. He hadn't had time to be with them long enough to get some things nailed down, uh, he felt. Uh, And he knew that Christians everywhere, him included, himself included, were being persecuted and just didn't know how stable they were. So when he realized it might be some time before he was able to get there, he finally sent his protege, Timothy, there, to visit them, look in on them, and bring back a report. And the report was a good report. They were thriving as a church, and they were not only holding up under persecution, but they were evangelizing so zealously that Paul was discovering when he went to share the gospel for the first time in other areas that the Thessalonians had already been there. In some cases, Paul didn't have to say a word. So uh, he wrote them this letter to praise them, to encourage them. It's a, there's a lot of attaboys in this letter. And also, as we talked about last week, he did spend a good chunk of chapter 4 reminding them and encouraging them to live a life of sexual purity. Again, there's not, it doesn't look like there was anything going on in their church at that time as there was, for instance, in Corinth. It's not so much a correction as it is a warning. It's simply Paul acknowledging that this was a culture that was rife with sexual sin. And he's telling them this is one of the most important ways you can stand out is to avoid this. Make an effort, make a, a, pur- a purpose to live a life of sexual purity. So... Uh, Then he goes on to praise their love walk. He is impressed and pleased with how they manifest the love of Christ for one another. And as I mentioned in the teaser last week, the Thessalonians were so eager to preach the gospel. You know, they had a love not just for one another, but for their fellow man. And in their eagerness to preach the gospel, uh, what drove, what, what filled them, I guess, with a sense of urgency is that they were convinced that Jesus was coming back soon in their lifetimes. And the Thessalonians weren't alone in that. Most of the early church really, really believed that. And I need to tell you now, even though many of you have heard it, please always keep in mind when I share something many of you have heard, there are always people in here who have not heard it. At least haven't heard it as many times as some of you have. But I want to share a little bit of my testimony, uh, kind of, pave the way for uh, what we're going to read here in Thessalonians. Uh, as I've mentioned, when I was a little boy, going back as far as I can remember, growing up in a church-going household, uh, my family, by and large, had not made a true confession of faith. My mom had, uh, but it wasn't something 
that was at the center of our life. But it was a stable home in terms of our religious life because we did go to church every Sunday. So I was in Sunday school every Sunday. I was in church every Sunday. Mom would read to us Bible stories. Uh, It wasn't, again, our day-to-day life was not overtly Christian. And most of us had not made a true confession of faith. But I did grow up believing in God, believing the Bible was true, believing, therefore, in heaven and hell and the devil and death. Okay, I knew I, I, it, this was the weird thing. At least I think it was weird. It was something that always bothered me. If heaven and hell are real, how do I know where I'm going? I'm talking when I'm seven, eight years old. So somewhere along the line, this, I was having this uh, little texting conversation with Cheryl, my sister, last night about when this happened. But a lay witness mission came to our church. And if this were, uh, we, were, we were going to a Methodist church and another, a group from another Methodist church from Iowa, I think, came. Uh, we had one of them stay in our home, this thing. And what it basically was, it was almost like a VBS, but for the whole church, not just for children. And the theme of, this, of these meetings was the second coming. Now, that was, I'm sure that was a doctrine that I had encountered. For one thing, it was part of the creeds we recited. And, uh, but it was never something that was front and center, at least in my mind. And the kids, the kids group, at least our age, and including me, we sang a song for the program. And it was called The Countdown's Getting Lower Every Day. Has they, did anybody else ever have to learn that song? Somewhere in outer space, God has prepared a place for those who trust him and obey. Ever hear that? Nope? Okay, good. Because it's not doctrinally sound. Heaven is not in outer space, okay? No, it's just, it's a, no, it's actually a pretty good song. Jesus will come again, although we don't know when. The countdown's getting lower every day. And then we do the countdown, and then we sing another verse, do the countdown, sing another verse. Uh, But I remembered that. The countdown's getting lower every day. And the logic of that statement impressed me at whatever age I was. Ten? It was 74, was it really, for sure? So I was 10. Yeah. And uh, I guess what shocked me about that was, in my mind, see, I didn't confess Christ until 76. And it's weird to me that two years went by between that, that lay witness mission and, and my being born again. But it was. But I have to tell you, there was not an immediate shift in my concern. Uh, because, again, I remember... 1976, when I curled up in a ball in a chair in my home after mom scared me, reminding me that lightning can strike me at any time and kill me, and therefore, why am I waiting? And so I confessed Christ, and I meant it. I invited him into my heart. I committed my life to him as best I knew how, but my number one concern was I didn't want to have to worry one more night about going to hell. All right? So suddenly I'm not afraid of death. Now, I've shared with you some of my early zeal for sharing Christ. And a lot of my my sharing with my friends, it was simply based on my assumption that every kid was as concerned about heaven and hell as I was. And maybe they thought about death as much as I did. Most of them probably didn't, and therefore they couldn't understand what I was so uptight about. But a couple of years later, I was immersed into a culture where the urgency of Christianity was not centered around death, but around the rapture of the church. There's still an urgency to bring people into the kingdom of God, share the gospel, because the the church could be raptured at any given moment. 
Now, we're going to define some terms here in just a little bit. But, I mean, it was everywhere. This was in the late 70s and the mid to early 70s to mid 80s was a big time of prophetic teaching. You had, uh, and, and even popular prophetic stuff. Even stuff that turned out to be wrong or at least uh, not entirely accurate. Remember the late great planet Earth. This was, a, this was a huge bestseller, and I think it did some good because it got people realizing these could very well be the last days, and Jesus could come back any time. And we'd be walking down the street or at a, at a, on a youth activity with the youth group where we went to church in Tulsa, and somebody would say, rapture practice, and we'd all jump. <laughs> and we'd buy T-shirts that said, in case of rapture, this shirt will be empty. And when we shared the gospel, in our minds, what we were preparing people for was the rapture because we didn't want to see them left behind. That would be a good title for a book, I think. They could sell like hotcakes. A whole series of books. Now, I'll continue that story a little bit more about my testimony a little bit. I wanted to give you that background first because I am convinced that this was more or less the mindset of the Thessalonians. I'm not saying they were doing rapture practice drills, but they were. Their, their, again, their sense of urgency was, he's coming back, Jesus is coming back, let's get the word out there. So here's what we read in chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. What's he mean by that? People who have died. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, before we break this down, I want you to notice back there in verse 15 where he says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. He's nailing this down. There are times we have read and we'll read where Paul is saying some things and he'll We know, we believe scripture is inspired, it's God-breathed, that God is superintending the writing of all of it. But every now and then, Paul steps back out of this role and says, this I offer as my opinion. I have no word from the Lord on this, but if you ask me, for instance, uh, in light of this present distress, it's better for a man to remain single. But again, I have no word from the Lord on this. And then he'll say, he starts to say something else. Now, not, not I, but the Lord says this. And here he's saying this. This is a tough question. This is, this is an urgent question for the Thessalonians because what are they preaching? Jesus is coming back. It's going to happen any day. Any day. And little by little, Thessalonians are dying, just like they are all over the world. And they're like, oh, man, they missed the return. What happens to them? It's like they hadn't thought it all the way through. And Paul's saying, I have an answer for you, and you need to understand this is the word of the Lord. So if it's a good word, you can rejoice, because it ain't coming from me. It's coming from God, and it's a good word. And he says, don't 
be ignorant about this. Don't, be, don't fear about this because not only will the dead be raised, the dead will be raised first. They'll be the first ones to meet Jesus in the clouds, in the air. Paul, who himself, like most true believers of his day, considered the, the, the return of Christ imminent, but he's stressing that Christians who die before he comes back are not going to miss anything. You know, we have in this, in this passage the phrase, grieve as others who have no hope. Uh, we often refer to this in funeral messages for believers. It's not that Christians can't grieve, just that we don't grieve the way the world does. When the world loses somebody, they've lost them forever. People who have no hope in the resurrection. We lose them for a time being. We never shouldn't be sorry for any believer who dies, but we can certainly grieve for ourselves that we've lost them at least for a time being. It's like, might be a while before I see you again. So then, but there's, there's also that phrase where it says, he will bring with him. That uh, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Remember that. He brings them with him and they rise first. So where are they? Are they sleeping or are they with him? When he comes, he brings them with him. Then the dead in Christ rise first. I think the understanding here, well, I know what the understanding is, that when Christ descends from heaven, you know, with the shout of the archangel. What's the angel shouting? Anybody know? Here, hey, you guys. Here, here comes the judge. Or wake up, sleeper. It's going to be great, and everybody's going to hear it. The dead in Christ who are already with him in spirit at the general resurrection, at that return, at that moment, will be reunited with their bodies. Not old, rotten, decaying bodies, but changed bodies, glorified bodies. Immortal versions. Then those believers who are still alive will join them in the air, in the clouds, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now, this is the clearest description in the Bible of what is commonly known as the rapture, this catching away. I'm not going to go into a deep discussion here, and many of you are well-versed on some of the arguments. Bear with me. Again, some people don't have the same background. Uh, And this is not, as you know, my area of expertise. I have some beliefs. I'm going to share some scripture with you. But you need to know that down through the ages and across the face of Christianity today, there are many interpretations about particularly the timeline of events. So I'm going to share with you. I'm going to let you know where there's agreement. I'm going to share with you a little bit about where there's some disagreement. I'm going to share with you where, where I land on these things and why. We are going to address the timing issue because Paul does in, in the next part that we read. But we can't, we can't possibly explore all this, especially in the scope of studying just this one letter. But there are some basic divisions. There is broad agreement across evangelicalism anyway that there is a seven-year period of time that is addressed in prophecy, specifically Daniel. This is called Daniel's 70th week, and we read about it years ago when we were back in Daniel. But this is this seven-year period of time of, of prophecy that remains unfulfilled. It's mentioned, it's addressed, 
He tells us what's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. Every other week of Daniel's 70 weeks has happened. Then there's been this delay, and we're waiting for this final seven-year period. People often refer to it as the seven-year tribulation, but that's not accurate. This final seven-year period is the end, day, end of days. Daniel's 70th week, call it what you want. And there is a great tribulation, but it's only for the last half of that seven years. So three and a half years of the great tribulation. Okay? So, again, crossed evangelicalism, most people believe that. And I'm not saying just evangelicalism, but certainly across evangelicalism. We've got this seven-year period. We've got a three-and-a-half-year tribulation. And uh, there is very little disagreement about this, too, that that tribulation period and, therefore, that seven-year period will end with the physical, literal, visible return of Jesus Christ to earth. He will come again. And it's not, not just, there are some who would say. And this is a Christian version of what actually many Jewish people believe. I've mentioned this before. We talk about how, uh, it, what a tragedy it is that the Jews who brought the Messiah into the world missed him, by and large, in Jesus' day. And today you've got Jews who are apparently still waiting on the Messiah. And it's going to be a while before they realize, oh, it really was him. But most Jews aren't. Most Jews, what they are looking forward to is what they call a messianic age. There are Christians who believe the same way. Well, Jesus is coming back, but he's not going to physically return. His spirit will just fill the earth. And it's our job to manifest the kingdom of God on the earth. But I think it's important that when Jesus ascended, the angel... Yes, they're looking up at Jesus, an angel appeared to them and said, why are you staring into the sky? This same Jesus will return the same way. How did he leave? He left visibly, physically, and literally. He will return the same way. He's not coming back alone, though. He's coming back with saints. He's coming back with angels. Anyway. The disagreement, then, is about when 1 Thessalonians 4, 15, and 17 happens, which is that. When he appears in the clouds, shout of the archangel, last trump, the dead in Christ rise, and we who are alive and remain are caught up to be with him forever. When does that happen? Whether you call it the rapture, the return, the catching away, something happens there where we meet him in the air. And the pre-tribulation position essentially says that Jesus descends only so far as the clouds. He does not put his feet on earth at that time. He appears in the sky. There's the shout. There's the resurrection. There's the rapture. And then we all go to heaven and ride out the tribulation up there. Okay? This is what I was, this is what I cut my teeth on. The rapture is going to happen and it'll get us out of here before things get bad. Mid-trib, uh, in the middle of the tribulation, says essentially the same thing, that all the Christians are taken out, but since the tribulation doesn't happen until three and a half years into it, that's when the rapture happens. So we still miss the bad stuff. And then, of course, there's post-trib at the end of the tribulation, which is that we are all here for the whole seven years, and the passage in 1 Thessalonians is describing the return of Christ. It simply doesn't mention his feet hitting the ground. He doesn't get that far. And so the big... Division is, is there a separate event? Is the rapture a completely separate event from the return? Everybody believes in the return. 
And everybody believes that there is a, at least a rapture at that moment. Many believe, many of you believe probably, that there is a rapture at the beginning of that seven years or, or halfway through it so that we're not here for the tribulation. Now, before I tell you where I land on that, back to my story. As I said, I was caught up. I was steeped in, in, in uh, pre-trib tradition. We were getting out of here, and more importantly, this is going to happen soon. This was all the talk when I was first really being fed on the Word of God. The people who were teaching me all believed in pre-trib rapture, and it was drilled into me. And so there was a sense of urgency. I not only believed in a pre-trib rapture, I, I believed not only that Jesus was coming back in my lifetime, I believed firmly he was coming back before I got out of high school. I'm serious. And I was not alone in this. This was how, and a lot of this had to do with people figuring out dates, counting from the time that Israel became a state, counting a generation past that, and interpreting some very specific things Jesus said that in their mind could only mean that 40 years after Israel's statehood, he returns. That means he'll be, that means the return is in 1988, and you subtract seven years for the Daniel 70th week, brings you right back to 1981. I didn't graduate until 1982. Therefore, I'm not kidding, I skipped the ACT my junior year because why waste a Saturday? (laughs) It's funny. It's funny to me now. But I promise you that I and hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of others who believe similarly, similarly were no more wacko than the Thessalonians. Because this was their mindset too. We got to get as much done while, the, while, while it's day because Jesus is coming back. And after that, it's too late for anybody. And we had to tweak our, our predictions, of course. 1981 and 82 came and went. And so you start thinking, well, were we off on the calendar a little bit? No, that doesn't make sense because we're only counting from Israel. And then we began to consider the possibility that we might actually have to ride out the tribulation here and witness his return as a rescue. This is frankly where I land. I believe scripture most clearly teaches that we will be here for the tribulation. The arguments, and I'm going to save this for another, for maybe when we do get into Revelation or some other stuff. And maybe we can talk about it next week. I just don't have time to talk about it in depth today and get through everything else we need to read. But the basic arguments against it, they're good. And I know good people. Uh, and when I say where I land, I'm not 100% on this thing. I'm really not. I'm not absolutely, I can tell you, there's no way, there's no way we're going to be raptured. I hope that we're raptured out of here before that tribulation starts. I don't want to be here for it. I'd be a fool. But when you say God would never allow his people to go through that, that's not a good scriptural argument because God has allowed his people to go through a lot. Right? 
you can't tell me that there, are pe- there have been people down through the ages who, write, who quite legitimately believed, I mean, f- for legitimate reasons, even if they were wrong, that they were smack dab in the middle of the Great Tribulation. We think because it hasn't touched us, then it just hasn't happened. It hasn't touched anybody. But there are some good scriptural arguments for getting out of here at the head of that. There's some things we have to make sense of. Well, how can, how can, evil, how can evil be so rampant if you've got Christians on the earth who understand the authority, the authority of the believer? Well, and my answer to that is just because we're here in the tribulation doesn't mean we still can't exercise authority in our little corner of the world. People are going to be saved during the tribulation. So even though we might see uh, manifestations of evil and attack, an attack on Christ like we've never seen before, it doesn't mean that God is powerless, and it doesn't mean we have to roll over and be nothing but victims. More on the tribulation stuff later. The issue I want to point out is that, again, there was a season, certainly in the 70s and 80s, where there was this renewed attention and excitement and focus on the rapture slash return. I'm not going to split hairs on that for right now. After, after a couple of decades of that renewed excitement, our gospel more or less returned to focusing on preparing people for death. When we are talking about eternity, our focus has shifted back to, are you prepared to die? Meaning, if you were to die today, do you know what would happen to your eternal soul? And that's a good, that's a great, absolutely needs to be preached. Okay? But Paul is saying here, and it's this beautiful balance. You remember back in Philippians, he wrote about the possibility of his own impending execution. And he puts it like this. Man, I'm really, I've got a tough, tough decision to make. I'm torn between two options. One is I could leave and I'd be with Jesus. And that's by far the more attractive option. The other is I could stay here and be with you, which I'll probably choose to do because I love you. And it would be good for you if I stuck around for a while. In 2 Corinthians, he wrote, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So Paul's not afraid of death. There's one aspect of it that Paul very much looks forward to, which is he finally gets to see Jesus face to face. This is where he wants to be. It's where we ought to want to be. But he's also not pouring cold water on what the Thessalonians are doing. He writes in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1. But... Concerning the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. 
But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you are doing. So see, he's actually urging them to continue to focus on Christ's imminent return. And his warning is that the worst thing they could do is to stop thinking about his return. Because what's that going to produce? It's going to produce laziness. It's going to produce self-centeredness. Even if they don't flat out reject Christ or recant their confession, they're going to start thinking, well, hey, got the rest of my life. And they start living, and their whole testimony becomes about, look what God did for me. Look, look, look how I'm living for, uh, for God in terms of my behavior, my home. Rather than, again, this urgency, he could, he's coming back, he's coming back, and it's, it's probably tomorrow. But if it's, if it's not tomorrow, then it's certainly the next day. And if it's not the next day, certainly within the week, this is the way they felt. And Paul's encouraging this. He wraps it up beautifully there in verse 10, which when he says that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Meaning, it ultimately doesn't matter if you have died or are alive and remain when Jesus comes back. We will live. Our, our eternal destiny is identical. Whether we live and die as believers or whether we live and see his return. Our eternal destiny is identical because we will live together with him. Look at John chapter 14. John 14, verse 1. Let, this is Jesus speaking. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I will come and receive you to myself. This is the hope of the resurrection. This is precisely what Paul is referring to about the return there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I will come and receive you to myself right out of the grave or right off the ground. As a technical aside, I'll point out again that when Jesus comes in the clouds, he comes with the spirits of believers who have died. And then they receive their glorified bodies. And people have used the phrases uh, like uh, those who sleep in Christ to argue for the doctrine of soul sleep. Have you ever heard of this? It's fairly common, uh, which is simply the, the, the doctrine that when you die... Uh, you go into a state of spiritual hibernation, the long extended sleep you're, where you're not aware of anything. You're not in heaven, you're not in hell, you're in the grave, but you're not tortured, you're not conscious, you sleep, and that you awaken at Christ's second coming. Now, frankly, I do not find the doctrine of soul sleep to be damnable heresy. I don't think anybody goes to hell for believing that, Okay. I don't even find it a particularly offensive doctrine. I just think it's wrong. I think it's hard to defend from the weight of Scripture. I don't think it squares with the explicit statements that Paul clearly made, which is to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 
Uh, I am hard, I am in a straight betwixt two, whether to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. I think these are much more, much clearer statements rather than just simply seeing the phrase, those who have gone asleep, when, when we clearly know that's used in, in the Old Testament when it said he slept with his fathers, you know, what, meaning he died, right? Died like his ancestors. So, I believe, I believe, and I think scripture clearly bears this out, that those who have died in Christ have entered their rest, but they have not entered their reward. I think the rewards happen at the general resurrection when we have received our glorified bodies. And again, that's something about Christianity that elevates the dignity of the human body. There are, there are other religions that stress the whole aspect. I'm talking Eastern religions particularly, Buddhism, Hinduism, things like that, that really stress that the key to happiness and peace is to ignore everything physical and just concentrate on becoming a purely spiritual being and that this is what happens when we finally die, when we break the cycle of, of, of uh, reincarnation and enter nirvana or moksha or whatever. This is what's going to happen. We're finally released from our body and therefore we're released from physical desires which is the root of all evil, and then we'll just be free and totally spiritual. God alone says, no, I created the human. When I created human beings, I didn't create disembodied spirits and put them in bodies. I created man out of the dust of the ground and then breathed life into him and put that spark of life so that man could continue to procreate. Our bodies are, are absolutely going to be redeemed along with every aspect of us. So uh, I'm going to skip this part because that's, that's, that's too much. Let me wrap this up uh, this way. Praise and worship team, you can come on up here. There are three things <clears throat> that are immediately applicable about this passage. And briefly, they are this. One, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back, and that truth should create a sense of urgency in how we live. Because when he comes back, we want him to find us living and working in faith until that moment. We understand that we're forgiven. There's that constant tension I've talked about many times uh, between legalism and freedom. We never want to believe that our good behavior and our works makes us any more acceptable in the sight of God because it doesn't. Only it, the blood of Christ is entirely sufficient for, our, to, for us to be viewed righteous in God's sight. But that doesn't mean it doesn't matter what we do. And the fact is, and it's just like, think about it. You know, we, we have parents in here, parents we love. We have children we love. And there's nothing my kid could do that's going to make me love him any less or make him any less my son. But at the same time, yeah, Rainy too. And uh, just using one example at a time. But there are also things that they would just as soon I not catch them doing. Right? I mean, me too. I've told you the firecracker in the garage story a dozen times. I'm not going to tell it again today. The fact is that just because we're forgiven and just because we're loved doesn't mean that's what we want to be doing when Jesus comes back. 
the one cherished sin that we just can't break the habit of? Do you want to be in the middle? Do you want to be in the midst of a swear word filled tirade at your wife or your husband or your employee or your boss? Do you want to be cussing somebody out? Is, that, is cussing somebody out going to send you to hell? No. Is that what you want to be doing when Jesus comes back? Why, you son of a... <gasps> so Jesus is coming back. His return is imminent. We do not know when it's going to happen. That's what Paul means by a thief in the night. It's good that we don't know when it's going to happen. Keeps us on our toes. We want to be living right as a result of knowing that he could come back any time. Second point, Jesus is coming back. And that truth should create a sense of urgency in how we preach. Because the people we are trying to reach may not have as long as they think. All right? We can't cram it down their throats. But we can still present the gospel with urgency if we love people enough. Finally, Jesus is coming back. Well, not finally, but third point. Jesus is coming back, but we don't know when. Even if it is not in our lifetime. In other words, if I could prove to you right now, if I could assure you, guess what? Jesus is not coming back in your lifetime. You know what? You still don't know how long your lifetime is. Second Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, says this. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I'm going to read verse 2 there in the New Living Translation. It says, For God says, At just the right time I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Don't wait till tomorrow, because you might not be here. Don't wait till tomorrow because he might be here today. Stand up with me. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.